Hey, Jim. Hey, Hello. Harvey. Hello. How, how are you? Okay, we just pulled into the drive. All right. Well, real quick, I was thinking about the show. This yeah. is this is the last show before 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 the fourth right before the fourth of July, so yeah. um, why don't we just repeat one of our fourth of July shows this Thursday, and yeah. then I will share. Yeah, remember my, last year's was it pretty good? It was pretty good. We had a little bit of Bruce Springsteen. We had quotes from um, the Zen Project. And we had a discussion about the history of the 4th of July. And basically the premise was um, independence for whom? Right. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a section of people who have independence. And there's a whole lot of people that don't. Yeah. Yep. Like Bernie said, are you, are you free if you don't have right. health care? Are you free if you right. can't afford right. education? Live are you Radio Free Nashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour.
there was Bruce Springsteen as we once again remember the 4th of July. My name is Jim Wolgamuth and I'm here with co-host and fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This show is on stations across the country thanks to Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcasts, Spotify, on your phone app, podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense to their bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. So welcome to our show before July 4th. We are going to mix and match some old information with some new information. We have more songs than normal, and I particularly like starting the show with Bruce Springsteen's song about the people who built America. But of course, he left some people out. And so on this show, we're going to try and highlight the many Americans who come upon Independence Day and wonder if it is for them. But first, let's consult with one of my favorite online historians, John Green from Crash Course, who will give us a perspective on how and why we celebrate July 4th and how and why that was just the start of a process, a fight that continues today. This is Crash Course U.S. History, and today we're going to talk about July 4th, which in the United States is known as Independence Day. This is the day that Americans celebrate our independence from Great Britain by doing what we do best, blowing stuff up, offering significant discounts on mattresses, driving long distances for uncomfortable family interactions, and eating a lot of grilled meat. Right, so the story goes that the founders of this nation signed the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776, parting ways with King George to found the freest, finest nation on the face of the earth. Yeah, except the Continental Congress actually approved a resolution of independence on July 2nd. The Lee resolution was proposed by Richard Henry Lee of Virginia in June of 1776 and was a simple legal declaration of separation from England. John Adams got so excited about it that he wrote to his wife Abigail, The second day of July 1776 will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with Shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forevermore. So what happened on the 4th? Well, not that much, actually. The Declaration of Independence was the formal announcement of independence, and its text was approved on July 4th, 1776. The fancy parchment version with all the pretty calligraphy wouldn't get drawn up until July 19th, and most members of the Congress signed the Declaration on August 2nd. Adams may have been wrong about the date, but he was definitely right about the celebration. Americans started celebrating the 4th of July as early as 1777, and as Adams predicted, the holiday was observed with feasts, 13-gun salutes, and fireworks. Why don't we call them illuminations anymore, Stan? You know, people can say, like, oh, we put a man on the moon, and we can refrigerate our meat now, but I miss the old days. Anyway, in 1778, George Washington celebrated the 4th by giving his soldiers a double ration of rum, and also there was much more shooting than usual. But while the people celebrated the anniversary from the beginning, the federal government took its sweet time in formalizing the holiday. Independence Day became an unpaid holiday for federal employees in 1870, and became a paid day off in 1938. Fourth of July observances have evolved over the years, but they generally involve patriotic displays, including decorations, fire, and explosives. Essentially, we celebrate our independence by having a one-day fake war each summer. Huzzah! Crash Course is produced and directed by Stan Muller. The script supervisor is Meredith Danko. Our associate producer is Danica Johnson. Today's show was written by Stan. And our graphics team is Thought Cafe. Every week there's a new caption for the Libertage. If you'd like to suggest one, you can do so in comments where you can also ask questions about today's video that will be answered by our team of historians. Thank you for watching Crash Course, and as we say in my hometown, don't forget to be awesome. So there's the 4th of July. But I suspect, I suspect that most people today would think that the Declaration of Independence, which was actually signed on July 2nd, but announced on July 4th, was it, and that was enough. I wonder how many people would realize that that declaration meant absolutely nothing 
without the five-year war that followed. So let's go back to John Green and get his take on the revolution. All right, let's start with the war for independence. If you've been watching Crash Course, you'll know that we're not big on gratuitous war details, but we're obligated to tell you something about it. The main strategy of the British in the Revolutionary War was to capture all the cities and force the colonists to surrender. And the first part of that strategy pretty much worked. They captured Boston and New York and Charleston, but all the colonists had to do was not quit. I mean, they had home field advantage, knowledge of the terrain, easier supply lines, and Mr. Creepy Eyes down here. So while the British took the cities, the Americans, or Continentals, held onto the countryside. The most famous battle of the war was probably the Battle of Trenton, where Washington was like, I'm gonna cross the Delaware on Christmas morning. He, he had a funny voice. Everybody knows he had a funny voice. It's famous. That's a made-up fact. Don't put it on your AP tests. What do I know about Washington? Well, I know he had a funny voice. Washington surprised a bunch of Hessians, which was a pretty impressive victory, especially since he'd just come off a string of defeats. But he wasn't able to turn it into an all-out rout and ended up having to spend a miserable winter in Valley Forge. But remember, generals always get to eat. But the most important battle, at least in the North, was not Trenton, but Saratoga. This was a major defeat for the British, and while it's often put forth as an example of the superiority of the continental fighting man, the British mostly lost because of terrible generaling. The French would eventually bankrupt themselves helping us, which would lead to their own revolution as thanks we named our most important food after them. In the south, the country city trend continued with the British taking Charleston but then continuing to lose smaller scale battles and be harassed by guerrilla style tactics. The key battle of the war in the south, because it was the one where the British surrendered, was at Yorktown in 1781. Lord Cornwallis made the brilliant tactical decision to station his troops on a peninsula surrounded on three sides by water filled with French ships and the British lost the war. So what did this all mean for actual people? Well, Americans like to think that we all pitched in together and got rid of British tyranny and lived happily ever after. Also, that the Continental Army was the bravest, most loyal, and most effective fighting force in human history thanks to the leadership of George Washington. But actually, well, yeah, let's go to the thought bubble. Morale among Continental soldiers was often pretty low. Rations were poor and soldiers went unpaid. As Joseph Plum Martin, a soldier from Connecticut, wrote, they felt they were starving in detail for an ungrateful people who did not care what became of us. And many other colonists didn't fight for independence, they fought with the British. Others were pacifists, like the Quakers, who often had their property confiscated when they refused to fight. And in colonial America, of course, losing property also meant losing rights. And for slaves, the so-called fight for freedom was very different than it was for continental soldiers, because loyalty to Britain in the war could mean freedom. In 1775, British Governor Lord Dunmore issued a proclamation that granted freedom to any slave who deserted his master and fought for the British. Something like 5,000 slaves took him up on the offer, and in addition, many slaves saw the revolution as a chance to escape. Boston King left a cruel master and later wrote, I determined to go to Charlestown and throw myself into the hands of the English. They received me readily, and I began to feel the happiness of liberty, of which I knew nothing before. 100,000 slaves are estimated to have fled to the British. Now, many slaves were returned to their masters, but more than 15,000 left the U.S. when the British did. And it's worth remembering that the British Empire abolished slavery in all of its territory by 1843, and without a civil war. Thanks, Thought Bubble. So Native Americans were also profoundly affected by the Revolutionary War. Generally, they wanted to stay out of it, and the colonists mostly wanted them to remain neutral, too. Like, the Continental Congress was eager to remind the Iroquois of their history of neutrality, writing, This is a family quarrel between us and old England. You Indians are not concerned in it. We don't wish you to take up the hatchet against the king's troops. We desire you to remain at home and not join on either side, but keep the hatchet buried deep. Right, well, many of the Iroquois fought for the British anyway. The Oneidas joined the Patriots fighting against the Iroquois. Sometimes there were divisions within tribes themselves. Like with the Cherokees, younger chiefs tended to side with the British, older ones with the Americans. And it should be mentioned that, unsurprisingly, American troops were particularly brutal to American Indians who fought for the British, burning their villages and enslaving prisoners contrary to the accepted rules of war. And if the American Revolution was really about, as Thomas Jefferson would have it, the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then the Indians were definitely the losers because they didn't get any of those rights. So we know slaves and Native Americans didn't get much out of the Revolutionary War. How did it go for women? Yeah, not great. Some colonial women fought in the war. Deborah Sampson dressed as a man and fought at several battles, once even pulling a bullet out of her own leg. But women didn't get much out of the 
the revolution, they were basically still considered wards of their husbands. Or if they were unmarried, saleable assets of their fathers. However, the idea of Republican motherhood became really important. It held that for the Republic to survive, it was necessary to have a well-educated citizenry. And since women were the primary educators, they themselves needed to be educated so they could, to quote founding father Benjamin Rush, instruct their sons in the principles of liberty and government. But not vote or own property. So the war didn't end slavery, it didn't much change the roles of women, and it didn't displace the elite, land-owning, pasty, white guy leadership of America. So what was revolutionary? Well, the ideas, a lot of which are summed up in a single sentence of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So when the colonies became states, they all created constitutions which opened voting to more people. While most states still had property qualifications for voting, the bar was lowered, so there were far more voters than there had been, although they were mostly white and male. Another aspect of the American Revolution that was pretty revolutionary was the beginning of true religious freedom. Like with independence, the Church of England ceased to be the Church of America. And some founders, like Thomas Jefferson, were deists, believing that God had created the world, but then stepped away to, like, create other universes or try to build a boulder too big for him to lift. Jefferson called for a wall of separation between church and state that's best embodied in the bill for establishing religious freedom in Virginia, which Jefferson was so proud of that he had it mentioned on his tombstone. And the American Revolution profoundly changed the economy, too. Like, all these new ideas of liberty led to a decline in apprenticeship and indentured servitude. And immediately after the war, you began to see the split between the North, with its reliance on paid labor, and the South, with its reliance on slavery. Slavery was actually on the decline in the South until Eli Whitney went and invented the cotton gin in 1793, which A, made it possible to turn a profit growing inferior American cotton, and B, reinvigorated slavery. Yay, innovation! So it's worth remembering that some early Americans proposed a vision of liberty that sprung out of the idea of equality of property, which is very different from the way we imagine liberty today. But ideas of liberty, as diverse as they were, are really at the heart of what makes the American Revolution revolutionary. And that brings us back to slavery. The most common complaint among American high school students is that the revolution was deeply hypocritical. I mean, how could this guy write that all men were created equal when he himself held slaves and had kids with one of them? And, even crazier, American colonists often referred to themselves as slaves because they were denied the right to have a vote in Parliament about their taxation. Now, some people recognized that it was a smidge hypocritical to claim to be enslaved by British taxation while they themselves were actually enslaving people. But very few made the leap to say that liberty should mean freedom for the slaves. One exception was James Otis of Massachusetts who wrote concerning America's slaves that unless they were free, there could be no liberty. What man is or ever was born free? free if every man is not. But most of the founders, including this guy and this guy, were the cream of the colonial elites, and so they held slaves and made arguments against abolition. Like many historians now argue that Jefferson was trying to condemn slavery in the Declaration of Independence, but without slavery, he wouldn't have had his amazing life. I mean, if he'd been working, he couldn't have designed Monticello or stolen all those ideas from John Locke. And speaking of Locke, Locke equated liberty with property. And a revolution based on securing property against tyranny couldn't very well turn around and take slaves who, after all, were considered property. I mean, Jefferson once calculated that his slaves gave him a better financial return than his real estate investments. That being said, there were many and frequent protests against slavery. The most vociferous protesters were often African Americans, and in the northern states at least, their pleas were heard. Between 1777 and 1804, all states north of Maryland got rid of slavery, although most did so at a very slow pace and were careful not to deprive slave owners of the value of their property. Like, as late as 1830, they were still about 30 3,500 slaves in the North, and on the eve of the Civil War, there were still 18 in New Jersey. New Jersey! So the number of free people of color in the U.S. skyrocketed. There were fewer than 10,000 in 1776. By 1810, there were nearly 200,000 free black Americans. So in the end, real change came, as it usually does, not through a revolutionary event, but through a revolutionary process. To me, the really novel idea that emerged from the American Revolution was of American equality. Now, obviously, this was and remains a vastly unequal social order, but I'm talking about the kind of equality that Gordon Wood described in his famous book, The Radicalism of the American Revolution. The idea that no one American is inherently better than any other. Prior to the revolution, and certainly in Europe, there were definite classes of superior people usually determined by birth. I mean, people knew their place and they were expected to be deferential to their betters. But all that talk of freedom and inalienable rights introduced the idea that birth wasn't destiny and that all people should be treated with respect. And the idea that no one should be denied the opportunity to succeed because of who 
their parents were catalyzed change not just in America, but around the world. And while the U.S. no longer leads in equality of opportunity, that early American idea that we are all equal in our capacity to reason and to work became the foundation not just for the American Revolution, but for many others that would come afterward. Thanks for watching. The revolution of the 4th of July, not everybody was on board with it. Rich guys were, were still running the show. We lied to the Native Americans. Oh, no. But, hey, that's a story. Sad but true. And by the way, do yourself a favor. Search on John Green on YouTube. He gives wonderful, concise histories for all portions of um, American history. Um, and, you know, do him a favor. Subscribe to his channel. He, he does a great job. Okay, so we won our independence. We fulfilled that declaration of 1776 in 1781. But independence for whom? Okay, I want to break with our previous show. Because did you notice I said we lied to the Native Americans? Well, for God's sake, we did more than that. We stole their land. We put them on forced marches. We took their children to reprogram them. And if things didn't work out, we just killed them. But guess what? They're still here. And they're still fighting. Here's a couple of songs from Friend of the Show, uh, Joseph Filippo and the R.J. Phillips Band.
spit for Mother Earth For our sacred land For the water that we drink The pipeline it was planned Transporting oil underground For 1,000 miles Could it leak? Could it spill? Their response denied 300 tribes assembled Prepared to defend Our ancestral land The water on which we depend They would not listen to us Ignored our treaty rights The soldiers invaded friend of the show joseph d filippo and the rj phillips band with their songs we are still here and we shall not be moved because as we all know the native americans are still here and they are fighting hard for their rights 
But also, they're fighting to save the country and our planet from pipelines and fossil fuels for all of us. And by the way, if you ever want a musical historian, you got to follow up with him. Uh, just go to SoundCloud and check out Joseph D. Filippo, the R.J. Phillips Band on SoundCloud, and you will find a history lesson, a musical history lesson on almost every imaginable unwritten or hidden history in the United States. But consider Independence Day for Native Americans, not so much. So next, let's take a listen to Danny Glover portray a speech given by Frederick Douglass. Former slave, editor of the abolition newspaper, the North Star, was asked to give a speech in 1852 in Rochester on the 4th of July. (laughs) Mr. President, friends and fellow citizens, He who could address this audience without a quailing sensation has strong, stronger nerves than I have. I do not remember ever to have appeared as a speaker before an assembly more shrinkingly, nor with greater distrust of my ability than I do this day. A feeling has crept over me quite unfavorably to the exercise of my limited powers of speech. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and the natural justice embodied in the Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God both for your sake and ours that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions. Then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful. But such is not the state of the case. I see it with a sad sense of disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm and stern rebuke, for it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed, and its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, 
a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty in which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty an unholy license, your national greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and quality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bomb blast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Go where you may, search where you will, roam through all the monarchies and despises of the old world. Travel through South America, search out every abuse, and when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation, and you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. Danny Glover reading a speech given by Frederick Douglass in 1852 in which he described how the 4th of July, the promise of the 4th of July, the independence of the 4th of July clearly did not live up to that promise for uh, the African American free population, let alone <laughs> the slave population, the enslaved populations. Um, hopefully you recognize the first voice in that clip as Howard Zinn. He's another one of my favorite historians. And here's something else you can do. Go to the Zinn Project. Just Google Zinn Project um, for a lot of information about American history. Okay, so that speech was given by Frederick Douglass before the Civil War. Now, during the Civil War... Lincoln gave a speech about the potential of the Union, the potential for, for good. But he also wondered whether that Union could long endure. Let's listen. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here, dedicated to the great task remaining before us, 
that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth so there was Lincoln's Gettysburg address as read and performed by Jeff Daniels now thanks to Lincoln and th thanks to his efforts to get the 13th amendment passed and later efforts that got the 14th amendment passed African American men could now participate in the government of the country that had been built basically on their backs and so it appeared that they had won their independence from tyranny it had appeared but still a large part of the population was left out and so let's listen to a speech given by Susan B. Anthony when she was taken to court after illegally voting in the year 1872. Uh, this recording comes from Read Me a Classic. Friends and fellow citizens, I stand before you tonight under indictment for the alleged crime of having voted at the last presidential election without having a lawful right to vote. It shall be my work this evening to prove to you that in thus voting I not only committed no crime, but instead simply exercised my citizens' rights guaranteed to me and all United States citizens by the National Constitution beyond the power of any state to deny. The preamble of the Federal Constitution says, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. It was we, the people, not we, the white male citizens, nor yet we, the male citizens, but we, the whole people, who formed the Union, and we formed it not to give the blessings of liberty, but to secure them, not to the half of ourselves and the half of our posterity, but to the whole people, women as well as men. And it is a downright mockery to talk to women of their enjoyment of the blessings of liberty, while they are denied the use of the only means of securing them provided by this democratic, republican government, the ballot. For any state to make sex a qualification that must ever result in the disfranchisement of one entire half of the people is to pass a bill of attainder, or an ex post facto law, and is therefore a violation of the supreme law of the land. By it the blessings of liberty are forever withheld from women and their female posterity. To them this government has no just powers derived from the consent of the governed. To them this government is not a democracy. It is not a republic. It is an odious aristocracy, a hateful oligarchy of sex, the most hateful aristocracy ever established on the face of the globe, an oligarchy of wealth, where the rich govern the poor, an oligarchy of learning, where the educated govern the ignorant, or even an oligarchy of race, where the Saxon rules the African, might be endured. But this oligarchy of sex, which makes father, brothers, husband, sons, the oligarchs over the mother and sisters, the wife and daughters of every household, which ordains all men sovereigns, all women subjects, carries dissension, discord, and rebellion into every home of the nation. Webster, Worcester, and Bouvier all define a citizen to be a person in the United States, entitled to vote and hold office. The only question left to be settled now is, are women persons? And I hardly believe any of our opponents will have the hardihood to say they are not. Being persons, then, Women are citizens, and no state has a right to make any law or to enforce any old law that shall abridge their privileges or immunities. Hence, every discrimination against women in the constitutions and laws of the several states is today null and void, precisely as is everyone against Negroes. 
So finally, in 1920, women had apparently won independence from the tyranny of men. Apparently. But independence from tyranny was not achieved. The African-American community, especially in the South, but not limited to the South, had systematically been left behind and had never really been given their independence to fully participate in the country that had declared its independence way back in 1776. Pressure finally was too great and thanks to the efforts of Martin Luther King and so many others of the Civil Rights Movement on Lyndon Baines Johnson, the President, the Civil Rights Act was passed and a year later the Voting Rights Act was passed. So let's listen to LBJ address a joint session of Congress to press for There the is no constitutional issue here. The command of the Constitution is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. is no issue of states' rights or national rights. There is only the struggle for human rights. I have not the slightest doubt what will be your answer. But the last time a president sent a civil rights bill to the Congress, it contained a provision to protect voting rights in federal elections. That civil rights bill was passed after eight long months of debate. And when that bill came to my desk from the Congress for my signature, the heart of the voting provision had been eliminated. This time, on this issue, there must be no delay or no hesitation or no compromise with our purpose. We cannot, we must not refuse to protect the right of every American to vote in every election that he may desire to participate in. And we ought not, and we cannot, and we must not wait another eight months before we get a bill. We have already waited a hundred years and more, and the time for waiting is gone. you to join me in working long hours, nights, and weekends if necessary to pass this bill. And I don't make that request lightly. Far from the window where I sit with the problems of our country. I recognize that from outside this chamber is the outraged conscience of a nation, the grave concern of many nations, and the harsh judgment of history on our acts. But even if we pass this bill, the battle will not be over. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. Their cause 
must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. There was LBJ in 1965, but as you know, in 2013, the Supreme Court gutted that very Voting Rights Act. And it was immediately followed by an assault on voting rights within a number of states. But even with that, the Trump administration generated such a response to get out the vote that voting participation in 2020 set a record with 17 million more people voting than in 2016. States that were deemed solidly red, like Georgia and Arizona, went blue. Georgia then turned around in January and threw out two Republicans and gave the Democrats a slim majority in the Senate. The response from Republican state legislatures was immediate. Hundreds of bills were initiated in more than half the states to limit and hamper voting. The Democrats in the House of Representatives, to their credit, initiated H.R. 1, the For the People Act. But the Republicans were immediately up in arms. Mitch McConnell has called it a power grab by the Democrats. So you probably haven't heard this before, especially not on the mainstream media. But let's see just what this bill might do. This is part of the executive summary from the House of Representatives from the government webpage of the House of Representatives. And it says, this bill addresses voter access, election integrity, election security, political spending, and ethics for the three branches of government. Specifically, the bill expands voter registration and voter access and limits removing voters from the voter rolls. I don't see a power grab yet, do you? The bill provides for states to establish independent, nonpartisan redistricting commissions. Uh, no power grab there that I can see. The bill also sets forth provisions related to election security, including sharing intelligence information with state election officials, protecting the security of voter rolls, supporting states in securing securing their election systems, developing a national strategy to protect the security integrity of U.S. democratic institutions, establishing in the legislative branch the National Commission to Protect United States Democratic Institutions, and other provisions to improve the cybersecurity of election systems. Okay, it seems a little wordy, but I don't see a power grab. This bill also addresses campaign spending, including um, this bill also addresses campaign spending, including by expanding the ban on foreign nationals contributing to or spending on elections, expanding disclosure rules pertaining to organizations spending money during the during elections, campaign advertisements and online platforms and revising disclaimer requirements for political advertising. The bill establishes an alternative campaign funding system for certain federal offices. The system involves federal matching of small contributions for qualified candidates. The bill sets forth provisions related to ethics in all three branches of government. Specifically, the bill requires a code of ethics for Federal judges and justices prohibits members of the House from serving on the board of or for-profit entities, expands enforcement of regulations governing foreign agents, and establishes additional conflict of interest ethics provisions and federal employees and the White House. The bill also requires candidates for president and vice president to submit 10 years of tax returns. So I know the, 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 the guts is going to be in the details, I guess, when it got, starts getting written into regulations. But I don't see a power grab, with the exception of possibly 
the campaign spending part and then the ban on foreign national contributions. That would limit the amount of power by the rich in this country and oligarchs from foreign countries. I could guess, I guess I could see how that would hurt the Republicans, but does that really matter if that is it? But to me, all that bill does is try to make it easier for all Americans to vote. And isn't that what we have been striving for? Isn't that what the speakers and the songs have been begging for? Okay, so while the bill passed the House on March 3rd, it has been held up in the Senate because of the filibuster and the blockage of Republicans. But, you know, when it comes right down to it, primarily two Democrats, Cinema from Arizona and Manchin from West Virginia. But you know that. It will now be a matter of will the Democrats have enough guts uh, to get this done? Um, and I'm not real hopeful. An article in The Guardian just last Monday sees Biden and the Democrats just calling this effort in and not putting the needed effort into getting it done. So when Mitch McConnell is worried about being a power grab, don't fret it, Mitch. It's still the same Democrats. They're likely to capitulate and negotiate again. Okay, so with that, enjoy your Independence Day if you're a part of that lucky group that can. And just remember, if this doesn't get passed or if things continue as they are, maybe your independence and your Independence Day celebration is slipping away. So we're going to finish up again with Bruce Springsteen uh, with Born in the USA. And if you haven't taken the time to listen to or read the lyrics, um, make sure you do. Make sure you do. So have a great week. Bye now. See you next week.